to go to a concert. I thought, concert, preach. Concert, preach. Preach. And I'm grateful to have this opportunity. During this past week, we've been inundated. In fact, I was at a bookstore the other day. And I noticed on all the news magazines, there was one person's picture on the front of all of them. There was a picture of Pope John Paul II. He's died recently. Well, I'm sure you all know that. And his funeral has gone on. And people have, have seen it, this on large screen television. There's probably not been a funeral in, in modern times where more people were paying attention to this. But this was a pope whose last years were marked not with, with, with glory and health, but with suffering, as he struggled with Parkinson's disease. And we saw the images, or many of us saw the images, as he would come to the window in his last days and try to speak and try to, to bless the crowds that were out there in St. Peter's Square and was unable to. Our pastor now is with his father-in-law. This is a man who has been suffering for years with congestive heart failure as his heart has gotten weaker and weaker. And now he stands at the gate ready to face the last enemy after a life of suffering. Our country has watched and some of our number have stood vigil over the multifaceted suffering of Terry Shivo as she died. Pain and loss are inextricably linked to being human. We are touched by it again and again. I've sat and listened as a friend of mine described how, how there, there was an accident and he caused the accident and his toddler was killed. And he went and he picked up his toddler's dead body. And his toddler's blood was on his hands. But he killed his toddler, not intentionally. And he still struggles with that suffering. If we look here in our own body, we'll see those who are without jobs or, or looking that soon they will be without jobs. We see marriages where there's disharmony. It's not going well. It's not an easy thing. Those that are suffering with depression, those that are suffering under their own sin and the pain that that sin brings into their lives. Others are even facing their own impending deaths. In 1982, Rabbi Harold Kirshner wrote a best-selling book, when bad things happen to good people. In this book, he was struggling with the question that philosophers and theologians might call the, the problem of evil. From a theologian's perspective, it would be the problem of how can God be good and powerful And have all these bad, wicked, evil things happen on this earth. Rabbi Kirshner basically decided, well, 
God is good, but he just can't stop it all. He can't stop the evil. But today I'm not going to try to reconcile in theological and philosophical terms how God is good, how God is sovereign, and how we live in the midst of a fallen world where there is much evil. Rather, what I want to do today is I want to talk very personally and practically to you on how we can live, how we can live in the midst of this pain, how we can live in the midst of struggling with depression, how we can live in the midst of our parents dying, how we can live in the midst of this pain and trust God. There are questions we have to answer. Where is God? Is He all-powerful? Does He care? Does He receive some pleasure from the sufferings of men? Men around the world have looked for answers to these questions. In animism, there are these malevolent spirits that somehow we must be appeased by getting the right offering down. In Hinduism, well, it's bad karma. You're just getting what you deserve from some past life. In Islam, they would say, well, you have sinned against Allah. And that's why you're suffering. If you hadn't done that, you wouldn't be. In our current Western thought, evil comes out as some kind of random thing that just sort of happens. But I believe in the God of the Bible. I believe that God has revealed himself and his ways in that book. And I believe it is there that we must go when we need to learn how the eternal God would have us live with the pain that surrounds us. Now, we could go to the book of Job. It's probably the classic text. We have a man who suffers more than than certainly I have, and I would imagine than any of you have, losing his fortune, his children, the respect of his wife, reduced to, to his health, reduced to, to a man sitting in ashes covered with scabs and scraping himself with a broken piece of pottery. A man who knew suffering. And contrasted this with that the sovereign majesty of God over all. But I want to go to a more personal passage of Scripture. It's personal to me, but it's also personal to the author of Scripture because it is a place where that man is dealing with great pain and with great loss. What you tell, I want you to tell me that. I want to tell you a little bit about this man, this author, this prophet. He was a man who prophesied and wept. He prophesied for 40 or 50 years. I'm 45 years old. So he would have started prophesying when I was born. And he may still be prophesying at this point in my life. But he saw no repentance, at least no wide-scale repentance. He did not see a turning to God. He preached to them again and again to repent, but they would not. Rather, they persecuted him. They maligned him. They made fun of him and mocked him. They threw him into prison and into a muddy pit. They accused him of being a traitor on the side of Judah's enemies. 
All the time he prophesied their destruction, but he hoped for restoration. When that destruction finally came on the people of Judah, he was rewarded by the enemy. But he took no joy in that. Rather, he chose to suffer disgrace and remain with the people of God, prophesying to them. He had great pain. It said that he went to a place outside the city wall where there was a little cave. This is just tradition. But he went out to this grotto and there he cried. He cried out to God. His pain was so great at the fulfillment of his prophecies against these people that had despised him that he composed a series of songs to somehow give vent to his great pain. Just a side note, music often helps us communicate, doesn't it? Helps us communicate our emotions. This man chose a series of, of acrostic poems as he tried to give vent these songs, these dirges, these laments. So please turn in your Bibles with me to Lamentations. Not probably a book you read often. Lamentations comes from a Hebrew word, aha. Literally means aha. It's how three of the chapters start. You know, if we were to read all of Lamentations aloud this morning, You'd be amazed. No, you'd probably be scandalized at the pain that, the, that Jeremiah, the author, just screams out to us. Yet, if you look in the very center of the book, in chapter 3, we find a light that is so intense, especially against the surrounding blackness of the book, that we almost recoil like, like, have you ever been in a cave and someone shines the light in your eyes and you almost you die back? It's almost like that as we get in there. We shield our eyes from the brightness of this hope. We're only going to read six verses, just six verses this morning in chapter 3. Read verses 21 through 26. Jeremiah says to us, this I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. If there is just one thing that I want you to remember from this morning, it's this. There is hope in God's mercy. There is hope in God's mercy. We see this in three things in this passage. Jeremiah knew that there was hope in God's mercy because of God's attributes. Jeremiah knew that there was hope in God's mercy because God was his portion. 
And Jeremiah knew that there was hope in God's mercy because of God's sovereignty. First, Jeremiah knew that there was hope in God's mercy because of his attributes. In verses 22 and 23, we read, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah knew his theology. He knew what God had said about himself in his word. And he zeroes in on three attributes. Loving kindnesses, compassion, and faithfulness. Loving kindnesses are sometimes translated mercies. This is the favor that Jacob prayed about when he returned from Pandanaram and he was, he was in, in Bethel and he was remembering, God, I came here going to Pandanaram with nothing but my stick. And now I've become two companies. I've gotten all these children, wives and herds and flocks. Great is your loving kindnesses, your mercies toward me. He knew who he had been and that he hadn't deserved those, but God had given them to him. It's used again and again in the Psalms. It's the mercies. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. It is the redemption. O Lord, deliver me for the sake of your mercies, of your loving kindnesses. Loving kindness is a real and tangible favor, the preference, the kindness that God shows toward us, toward his children. You know, if we're honest, and if God gives us grace, we can do what used to be called counting your blessings. Have you ever done that? So often we want to zero in, we want to count on the quote, the, the, the bad things that happen to us. At least we perceive them as bad. But we want to ignore the good things as though we deserved all of those things. But God has given us the very air that we breathe, the ability to take another breath, the sun that shines, the rain that falls, the spring that comes out of winter, the Word of God that reveals God Himself to us and that doesn't change. Indeed, God's loving kindnesses are new. They never cease. The second attribute is compassion. What used to be called the bowels of mercy. This is the the feeling that, that Joseph got when after years of separation, he sees his brother Benjamin again. This is like, like, like I used to see on the construction site. I'd, I'd see someone, remember one time, someone was pulling a nail. They had a straight claw hammer. And it was up over their head. And they grabbed it and they pulled it. And that straight claw came down and just raked their face. And I thought, oh, that's got to hurt. It did, actually. It made it pretty bloody. But it's that gut wrench when we feel the pain of others. But in this case, it's talking about God. It's talking about God and His compassion, His feeling for you, for His children when they hurt. God is not some uninterested, dispassionate deity out there that doesn't really have any concern for His creation. 
He cares deeply for us. When bad things happen, God winces. Remember what he said, has said in, in Isaiah chapter 30. It says, Yet God longs to be gracious to you, to rise and show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait on Him. God's compassions don't fail. They continue on. And finally, the attribute of faithfulness. Faithfulness is something firm, something solid, something that can be relied on. It's mostly used in the Psalms and it's mostly used about God, but it's also used, do you remember when uh, Moses, Joshua was down in the valley and he was fighting? Okay, he was fighting, I think it was the Amalekites. And Moses was up on, on the mountain and he was praying. And as long as he had his arms up and he was praying, they won. But if you ever try to hold your hands up that way for a long time, you know, they start to shake and they come down. And then the Amalekites would start winning. And so Aaron and her, they got a stone. And they put Moses, so sat him down on stone. And they, they grabbed his arms and they held them firm. They held him up in the air, and Aaron and Hur supported those arms. They were solid for the battle. And God is like that. God is solid. He is a rock to which we can run. And he doesn't change. So when around us, what does the hymn say? When all around is sinking sand. You ever, you ever been in a place like that? In mud or sand that just or a bog. Get in a bog? A bog is, is peat and you just kind of keep going. You don't really find the bottom of it. You just keep going until you think about as far as you can go. God is a rock, a firm, a solid place. He is faithful to us. Now, every time you look at Scripture, one of the things you need to ask yourself is, so what? If this is true, so what? What difference does it make? Well, what it means to us, is that we need to know our God. We need to understand who He is, what He is like. We need a balanced view of God. We need to understand the breadth of His attributes. We'll never know the depth, but we need to understand at least the breadth of them. A couple of books I'll recommend to you on this. If you've ever read The Attributes of God by Pink or The Knowledge of the Holy by Tozer, a couple of books that will help you to begin to understand, to commence, to just get a glimpse of what God is like. But if we know who our God is, that will make a difference to us as we face the pain around us. But it's not... The only thing, Jeremiah also knew that there was hope in God's mercy because God was his portion. Verse 24 says, The Lord is my portion. I'm sorry, let me read that again. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. What is your portion? What do you want out of life? What will you be satisfied with? We have whole industries in our country that are devoted their sole purpose is to make, make us want more. To be dissatisfied. 
So we will only be satisfied when we have, and when we have, and when we have. And don't forget, what will we be satisfied with? God warned the Israelites when they were coming into the promised land. He gave them this solemn warning. He says, okay, you're going to go in there and you're going to get towns you didn't build, houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant. I'm going to give all this to you. Be careful. When you get in there and you become prosperous, you're going to be tempted to forget about me. I remember something. My grandfather used to pray for his children. Verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 38 and 9. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. And give me neither poverty nor riches. But give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you. And say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and dishonor the name of my God. Would you be satisfied with just God? I was, I told you earlier, I was getting ready to go to a concert last night. The man I was uh, going to go hear has a song he's written. He wrote, written it after meeting a woman down in Ecuador. She was a widow, she had eight sons. She lived in a little cinder block house and was raising these sons alone with basically nothing. She had just this little place. She grew corn. And that's all. And the things she kept telling this man over and over again, Jesus is all that I need. He provides for me. Jesus is all that I need. Is the Lord my portion can God be enough for us? You know, long time ago, before some of you were born, I was 19 years old. I was down in Mexico. A little village on the side of the highway named Cosillo. I was with a short-term mission team, so we were living in the church. I, uh, we had been going door-to-door earlier in the day. You've always heard the, the statement, don't drink the water in Mexico. Don't drink the water in Mexico. The guy I was with, he said, I'm thirsty. I'm going to ask for a drink. And I kind of go, no. But he did. And at that point, you can't really say, oh, no, thank you. I'm not thirsty. Because it's hot. They know you're thirsty. But she went to her clay jar, not to her bottle, and got out a couple of cups of water for us. I drank it. But I didn't drink it with faith. And I got sick. We were living at the church. And uh, so my bed, actually, I slept, with the equivalent, I slept right here. Okay? If, if that church were this place, I was right up on the platform. That's where I was sleeping. Well, they were having a meeting that night, so I couldn't be in bed that night. But I was too sick to be in the meeting, too. So I went outside, and I just lay down on the sidewalk in the dark, and I was sick and I was far from home, and I was 19 years old, and I started to see at that point that really God was all I needed. 
that I didn't need health, that I didn't need a bed, that I didn't need my mom taking care of me, but I needed Christ. And I began to see sometimes it takes that when things are taken away that you have the opportunity, the privilege to see that what you need is Jesus. We heap up stuff around us. Stuff can distract. Stuff can weigh us down. Stuff can get in the way. But if you went over and you talked to my brother and you sat down with him, he would be able to tell you about the African brothers and sisters that he worships every week with. And they have very little of the world's goods. And often they experience various kinds of suffering. But they are finding him faithful. They are finding that God is their portion and that God is enough. Well, then we have to ask again, so what? If God is our portion, what does that mean to us? Well, I think it means two things. First of all, it means we need to hold our stuff very lightly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 30 and 31, it's talking about the, the distress that, that the church was, was going, undergoing and would undergo. And said, in these times, we need to be living in such a way that, that, that those who buy things as though they don't possess them, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. So we need to ask ourselves questions like this. When... Uh, when one of my kids runs their bike into my new truck, what do I care about? Do I care about that, that truck? Or do I care about that child? It means that when we need to have various things for a variety of reasons, whether that be a home, a computer, a car, tools, clothes, whatever it is, when we need to have those things to do various things, are we holding on to them? Are we worried about the safety of them? Are we really concerned about what those things can do to help us build the kingdom of God? Secondly, we need to hold on. We need to hold on to God. When difficulty comes, any kind of difficulty, we can turn to God and say, God, I need you right now. I need you right now. Or we can say, all right, I don't have time for this now. I've got a problem to solve. At least as a man, we're problem solvers. I don't know what women would say, but so we have a problem to solve. And I don't have time for that right now because I've got to deal with this. Whatever this is. I've got to find that job right now. I've got it. And then I need to take care of. And we need to go see. God, I need you right now. I am holding on to you. Where else would you go? Would you trust your, in your own arm to work for yourself? 
Or would you trust in God's arm to work? Who's the stronger? We need to know and understand God's attributes. We need to hold to his person and have that be our portion. And we need to hope in his sovereignty because Jeremiah knew that there is hope in God's mercy because of God's sovereignty. In verses 25 and 26, he says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good to wait silently for the salvation of the Lord. The Lamenter also wrote in chapter 29, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamities give you a hope and a future. That was written in a letter to those who had been already sent to Babylon and were in exile far from their homes. But he was saying, I know what I'm doing. Take care. Now, by application, we can't say that 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 was written to us per se, but it applies to us. God has our welfare at heart. In verse 33 of chapter 3 of Lamentations, he says, He does not willingly afflict or grieve the sons of men. Rather, in Hebrews 12, we learn that he is disciplining us for our good. God doesn't give us what our sins deserve. That would be death. But he disciplines his children for their good. Think about the vine dresser. In chapter 15 of John, there was an old saying back in in New England, you have your neighbor in to to prune your fruit trees. You couldn't be trusted to prune your own fruit fruit trees. Have any of you ever done pruning? If if you do pruning, you really got to make it ugly. You got to. I remember we used to live where there was a grapevine and pruning that vine back. You go, man, I'm just going to kill this thing. Prune it back. But if you prune it back, and the divine vine dresser knows how far back to prune it, it will bear fruit, and it will bear more fruit. It's not pleasant. It's not comfortable when he does that, but it helps us to bear fruit that we can give to Him for His glory. But we are an impatient people. Time and again we read it, there's instant this and instant that. We're like some spoiled child who wants it and wants it right now. (coughs) The thought of waiting for anything for years, and it often is years, it's just foreign to our thinking to delay. But it's not foreign to Scripture. Think about Moses. Moses, who from age 40 to age 80 was a shepherd in the desert. All that in preparation for leading God's people Are we surprised then when the scriptures call him the meekest man in all the earth? He understood what it meant to be humbled. Jacob, 
worked seven years for Leah, seven years for Rachel, six years for Flox. That's 20 years. What were you doing 20 years ago? He was leaving home just to go pick a wife up. 20 years. David. David spent 10 years running, hiding out from Saul while he was hunted down. Like, he compared it to like bird hunting. He's out bird hunting. He's just after me and after me. And he won't, he won't leave me alone. He keeps following me around, trying to kill me. Ten years. God doesn't seem to be in a hurry, does he? With his people. So what? So when we are given difficulties, when we are given painful situations, when we are given hardships, I don't know about you. My first reaction, I'm out of here. I don't like this. I'm running. No. No, we need to wait. When he gives us these painful situations, we need to be very slow to run away from them. We need to be quick to wait on him and to seek him. To wait for God to save us and to show his goodness. To wait. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah knew that there was hope in God's mercy because of God's attributes. Jeremiah knew that there was hope in God's mercy because God was his portion. And Jeremiah knew that there was hope in God's mercy because God is sovereign. There is hope in God's mercy. I haven't lived a very gentle life, especially in comparison to many of you. I'm not old yet. I stand before you with a loving wife, surrounded by my children. But this passage of Scripture has become one that speaks to me again and again. In fact, today, I don't know about you guys, but today I'm the one who needed to hear this sermon. I needed to hear from God that He doesn't change, that I can hope in God. Was I suffer or looking at, at, at some great difficulties? No, not compared to many of you. Our minds can make up Difficulties out of small things. But that's what I was seeing, was the difficulties. And I wasn't hoping in God. So when trouble comes, I have the question, will I come? Will I hope in Him? Well, I have found God to be solid and to be reliable. He doesn't change. He is the same. He was the same for Jeremiah. He has been the same in my past. He will be the same for me today 
and who will be for you. God still shows great care and tenderness for his children. For there is hope in the mercy of God. Amen. If I could ask the elders to come up, and David will have the Lord's Supper.